joining me for episode seven of the Learning Revolution podcast. I'm Jeff Cobb, and Learning Revolution is the podcast for people who want to grow a successful education, training, or lifelong learning business. My guest for this episode is really an exemplar, in fact, really the touchstone in many ways for so much of what I write about in Leading the Learning Revolution. Alan Weiss is well known around the world as the million dollar consultant. And even if you don't consider yourself a consultant, I can guarantee you that you will learn a tremendous amount by tuning into this conversation with him. Alan has managed over the course of the past two decades to build a huge global brand to attract legions of loyal followers, but most of all, to deliver enormous value as a teacher and mentor. I've benefited directly from numerous workshops with Alan and mentoring with him. And over the past year, I've also been a subscriber to his weekly Common Sense Consulting videos and his Friday Wrap audio series. So I'm definitely speaking from experience on this one. Before we roll into the interview with Alan, I I do just want to mention that for every one of these interviews that I'm doing on the Learning Revolution podcast, I do put together show notes. Um, The notes highlight major topics that are covered in the interviews, and I also provide links to a variety of other resources. So if you're out there listening, I encourage you to, to check out the website for the show notes to get a little bit of extra value. For this episode, simply go to learningrevolution.net slash episodes seven. So now, without further ado, let's transition into my conversation with million-dollar consultant and architect of professional communities, Alan Weiss. I'm joined today by Alan Weiss, uh, who is uh, the author of uh, or co-author of more than 40 books uh, and has been inducted into the Professional Speaking Hall of Fame. He's well known as the Million Dollar Consultant, and um, well, I could go on with uh, accolades and accomplishments. But first of all, thanks so much, Alan, for for taking the time to talk today. Jeff, happy to be here. You know, you have a, a number of brands that you've leveraged over time, but one of the ones that I'm most interested for for purposes of our discussion today is um, one you use really at the top of your website, which is the architect of professional communities. Can you tell me what, what does that mean from your perspective? I, I think communities uh, are the future of professional groups. I, I think trade associations where you have a monthly uh, magazine and an annual convention are going to disappear. In fact, we see many of them disappearing now. Uh, they're going broke, they're losing membership. But I think a true community, uh, such as I have with Alan's forums and, and so on, uh, is one where people interact. Uh, they're drawn together by the quality of the people there. Uh, they act as peers. They help each other. And in helping each other, they help the overall profession. Uh, it's not dissimilar, uh, by analogy, uh, to uh, the iPhone and apps. Uh, the more apps that are created, the more people buy them, the more people are attracted, the more apps are created. Apple then creates even a better iPhone, and the cycle repeats itself. So that's what I mean by community, and I, you can't, not anyone can create a community. You have to have a strong brand and thought leadership and intellectual property, and so in boutique consulting, uh, I've been able to do that. And, and, I mean, what has been the core to being able to, to build up that brand and actually attract a, enough of a community to, to make it work, to provide the kind of dynamic you're talking about? I think like anything else, you have to consistently provide excitement and value. Uh, you have to provide new ideas, intellectual property, uh, and you have to be fearless in spreading it. So uh, I give away everything I have in my books. You know, it's, you, you were kind enough to mention before I've, I've, I've published 46 books. And... Uh, 
I put everything I can into those books. I put everything I can into my teleconferences, into my podcasts, into my speaking engagements, into my blog, into my columns. And so I have a dozen or two dozen ways I interact with the public, specifically in my, in my field, which is boutique consulting, coaching, and so forth. And uh, when people find value, when people find excitement uh, in being with you, uh, they tend to uh, congregate. And when you bring good people together, other good people follow to be with them. And, but that's the secret. People have to be excited, and they have to see value they can use immediately. And now, you know, obviously you, you charge well for, for some of what you do, but there's an awful lot that you provide up front that's just free, that it's just out there for anybody to get. And I think a lot of, you know, particularly organizations, established institutions are fearful of that, but even individuals who think, well, I'm, you know, I'm giving away the keys to the kingdom here. Uh, but, I mean, it sounds like that's really essential from your viewpoint. I, I get a laugh out of people who tell me things like, you know, I want to protect my intellectual property. You know, I'm afraid somebody's using some words that I use. Uh, what if I get too much business? And it just kills me. Uh, the fact is that uh, the more that you share, the more it rebounds to your benefit. The more you give, the more you get. And by the way, that applies to anything. If you're in a community, the more you give to it, the more you get out of it. Uh, if you're in a meeting, the more you give, the more you're going to get out of it. When I teach, when I do a, a program of any kind, whether I'm delivering a keynote or a workshop, I learn more than anyone else in the room every single time. So uh, if you hide your intellectual property under a mattress, the same thing happens as if you hid your money under there. Uh, nobody might find it, uh, but it's never going to gain you any interest either. And, and now, I mean, from my perspective, and I know a lot of the, the folks who watch you and participate in your events feel this way, you manage to do an awful lot. And I know you're really a, a one-man shop, um, but you know, you're producing on a level that you might expect from a much larger organization. How is it that, that you're able to do that with really pretty limited resources? Well, I have no staff with me. I mean, I'm sitting here with my feet up on my desk, staring out into my backyard from my den. Uh, I have a wife and two dogs, basically. Uh, and uh, my wife isn't uh, you know, involved in the business, and my dog's a little bit less so. Uh, and so uh, the, the, uh, the thing about my productivity, my ability to create content, uh, is that I never self-censor. I have an intellectual curiosity, and when I see something interesting, I make note of it, and if I'm still interested later, I do something with it. Uh, I never rewrite. I never edit myself. So as an example, uh, a few weeks ago on Alan's forums, uh, one of the people there, uh, Phil Simchich, who's an accountant, who's a financial expert, uh, mentioned the concept total days to cash. In other words, how many days it takes you to collect your cash. And uh, I made a note of that immediately, uh, and I asked him then, is that proprietary? Did anybody own that? He said, well, no, it's a standard financial kind of thing. So I, I called it uh, TDTC, Total Days to Cash, and gave it an acronym. Uh, and then I developed uh, a process visual around it, showing that if you get paid before you begin the project, that's a green zone. Uh, if it's after you start, it's a red zone. And if it's a conclusion, it's a black zone. You know, you might never get your money. You have no leverage. And so you want to stay in the green zone as much as you can. And that's now becoming my intellectual property. So what happens is I see something, I make a quick note. When I return to it, if it's still of interest, I schedule it somewhere to do something with it. Uh, and I'm never afraid of what people think. I don't care if people like it or not. I don't care if people find fault with it or not. And I certainly don't worry about perfecting it. But I get out there as much as I can. And uh, what do you know? People respond. And I think you hit on it in that last question, but... One of the things that I find organizations really struggle with is how do they know when they've got a, a successful offering? How do they know when to take that chance? And 
You know, I have to say, I've, I've rarely seen you fail, whether with a free offering or a paid offering, and, and you charge quite substantially for your paid offerings. How do you decide when the time is right to, to pull the trigger on a workshop or another offering? Well, there's two, two issues here that you raised. First is, uh, I fail. Uh, you know, I fail every year uh, in, in one thing or another. If you're not failing, you're not trying. The, the difference is I have no fear of failure. And so, you know, once a year I'll cancel a workshop because there's not enough response to it. Uh, or I'll run something with a few people, uh, or whatever it is, uh, but I don't sweat it. So I have no fear of failure, and if you're not failing, you're not trying, because if you never fail, it means you're not taking sufficient, prudent risk. The second issue, though, is um, how do I run so many successful things? I've got a good batting average. And it goes back to the question you first asked me, which is about community. My communities design my products. And so, you know, I was asked if I would um, uh, do something on powerful language because people like the way I, I come up with language in, in both written and oral forms. And so I said on my forum, which is one of my innermost communities, meaning it has fewer and fewer people, I said on there, listen, uh, if you want, I'll do this when I go to San Francisco to run another community event anyway, which is virtually for free, uh, and I'll call it Super Language, uh, and it's $1,800, and it's restricted to 25 people, you know, and the first five people get dinner. Uh, and so right now, as you and I speak, there are 10 people in it, and this is scheduled for November, and you and I are speaking in early April, and so there's no question I'll get 25 people uh, at uh, an average of $1,800 a piece or thereabouts. Uh, and it's de- it was designed by, it was uh, proposed by people in one of my inner communities. And so I have a pretty much, uh, pretty much of a guarantee that when my communities come up with something, not only uh, is it an idea that reflects a need in the community, but it means it takes a viral trip through my community saying, Alan's going to work on this, you, you better get on board or you might miss it. And I also have a habit of doing things just about once in the United States. I might do it in Sydney and London, occasionally Berlin or someplace else. Uh, but rarely do I do things more than once or twice in the United States. So people know there's a scarcity aspect to it. So you've got that combination of, of scarcity and community. Um, and I would assume, I mean, do you feel that's, that's the real key to, to maintaining your price point? And I ask because, you know, I'm continually working with organizations that are struggling to, you know, even get people to pay 50 bucks for a webinar. That's not a struggle you have. Um, so, you know, <laughs> Thank, Thank God, no. <laughs> uh, so it sounds like scarcity, community, any, anything else that's a key to, to maintaining, uh, you know, the, the price points that you're able to maintain? Well, look, if you're doing something physically, uh, you know, three-dimensionally, if you're doing a workshop somewhere, as opposed to a, a teleconference. If, if, you, if you want people to go somewhere, there are three elements. One element is the value that they perceive. The second element is the brand. And the third element is the venue. And so what happens? I've got the strongest consulting brand in the world for independent consultants. Uh, the value I provide is unequivocal, especially since it's suggested by people who want to go there anyway, so you know it's valuable. And the third thing is the venue. So uh, I just talked about this thing in November. It's in the Mandarin Oriental Hotel in San Francisco, one of the top properties in the city, and I got a $299 rate for people. I used the Breakers in Palm uh, Beach. I used the Ritz-Carlton in Naples. Uh, for my Million Dollar Club, uh, you know, I, we go to Bora Bora, where we were at the Four Seasons, or St. Lucia. We'll be in Monte Carlo later this year. So it's about value, brand, and venue. You can get away with two of the three sometimes, rarely one of the three. But when you have all three, people pay twelve, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 to be with me. And I'd like to focus on that, that value aspect um, of, for this, this next question. You know, in the, in the past... I don't know, maybe it's been a decade or so in the, in the corporate training market. There's been a huge 
uh, emphasis on return on investment. Everybody has to show that if they're going to spend money on training, it's actually going to produce results. In the continuing education and professional development markets, there hasn't been that kind of explicit pressure. So you show up at a conference and it may have no impact on you whatsoever. But my experience, at least with your events, is that value is there. There is a return on investment um, that you know I feel quite strongly afterwards. Do you think there's going to be more pressure on providers of training and education to to provide that sort of sense of return on investment uh, going forward? No, because they fought it forever. You know, I disagree with your statement. I think that in training and development, as well as learning, uh, there's been very little emphasis on measurement, metrics, ROI, or anything. And that's for, for several reasons. One is the fact that training companies, uh, these, these large companies that sell, in essence, either boxes of materials or boxes of digital stuff, to use a, a metaphor, um, don't want anything measured because their stuff is simply uh, getting your ticket stamps and they don't care about measurement. What they care about is selling materials and selling per head uh, experiences. The second reason is that human resources and learning and development and training, which are the three areas that purchase these things normally, don't want to be measured because of the same reason. There's no inherent metric uh, and they're incapable of creating any to show that there's been a return. The last time I looked... Uh, which is about two years ago, the American Society for Training and Development estimated that training in the United States was a $60 billion a year industry. That's with a B, and it doesn't count consulting. $60 billion in training, and I would tell you that less than 5% of that uh, is done on the basis of an ROI. The third reason is that uh, management itself, which ultimately funds these things, senior management is ultimately funding it through HR, um, they don't have any credibility. They don't believe in HR. They don't believe in, in the training department. I mean, they throw people into those areas because they don't really think they're good elsewhere. If they thought those people were very good, they'd be using them in the line operation. And that's a sad but true fact. You can't find me three human resource executives who were promoted to the CEO of a Fortune 1000 firm in the last five or ten years. You just can't do it. And consequently, the, the organizations, the uh, HR organizations and training organizations have no credibility. So management throws money at that and hopes that maybe they'll get something out of it. But one of the great crimes in corporate America is there really is no connection between the investment in training classes uh, and the return you get from those classes. Right, right. And, and, I, and I'd argue the same is true out in the general world of um, continuing education and professional development. Uh, nobody measures what the impact actually is of a conference or, or a seminar that somebody uh, I attends. Agree. Now, it, uh, kind of extending that thought a little bit, um, you know, I think I know how I would answer this question, but I'd be interested in how you think about the question. Do you feel like you know, as somebody who is providing these educational developmental type experiences, that you're in the business of, of helping people be better learners? Well, I'm in the business of helping people uh, to think better. Uh, I can't make people learn, just like I can't motivate people. Motivation's intrinsic, and so is learning. What organizations and people can do is to set up environments conducive to learning and conducive to motivation, but that's an intrinsic human pursuit. You can't teach enthusiasm. You can't teach acceptance. You can't teach optimism. I can make things interesting enough so that people want to think differently, and if they think differently, they might just act differently. But the real change agents are internal. The real change agents are in the organization. Now, when you enter my communities, to go back to your original theme, now you're in my organization. And if you enter my communities, then I can help you change because I become a change agent. But in the typical client relationship with a corporate client, change agency is internal, not external. So just to... To, to wrap up, and I, I, I couldn't agree more with uh, um, that, that uh, 
last line of thought. Um, if if you were going to advise, whether it's an individual or an organization that you know wants to go out and and, and create or maybe rejuvenate a high impact, high revenue, educationally focused business, what would be your your main uh, point of advice to them? Is this even a corporate organization? Uh, could be corporate, but I'm thinking more of, you know, let's say you are a trade and professional association or you're a small training firm or you're an individual subject matter expert. In, in okay, that's helpful. And so what, what would be my advice to them to help uh, help learning be more effective? To be more effective and, and to build a business that's really going to, you know, be successful. You have to work backwards. It's counterintuitive. You have to find out what the improved client condition will be, what the ultimate results are, and then work backwards to create it. You can't do anything off the shelf. You can't do anything based necessarily on your methodologies. There's a difference between expertise and methodologies. And most poor consultants lead with their methodologies. Great consultants are experts. And the more they are expert in, the more organizations they can attract. And so if you work backwards from how to improve the organization, improve the client's condition, to what has to happen to make that happen, to what has to happen to make that happen, uh, then you're in business. Uh, but if you try to work from today forward, if you extrapolate forward based on your current abilities, based on your current models and methodologies, based on what the client thinks he or she wants rather than what they really need, you're not going to be terribly successful. Well, great. I think those are uh, fantastic uh, words of, of wisdom to close on. Alan, thanks so much for, for taking the time to talk today. I really enjoyed it, Jeff. Thank you. That wraps up my interview with Alan Weiss. I encourage you to visit Alan at www.summitconsulting.com to find out about his books and workshops and everything else that he offers. Take a look under workshops and seminars to find out more about the Common Sense Consulting video series that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, I found that to be highly valuable and, and also a great product potentially for you to emulate in your own business. You can also get the show notes for this episode of the podcast uh, simply by going to learningrevolution.net slash episode 7. If you enjoy this episode or if you're enjoying the podcast in general, I would be truly grateful if you would share it with others. You can do that in a couple of ways. One is simply by going to learningrevolution.net slash share, and that will automatically populate a tweet for you to send out to your community. Uh, Another way to tell others about the podcast is to go to iTunes uh, at learningrevolution.net slash iTunes and write a brief review or just give a few stars, uh, hopefully five stars for the podcast on iTunes. I'd really appreciate it. In the meantime, this is Jeff Cobb, your host here on the Learning Revolution podcast, and I will see you at the revolution. Thank you.